Consider for a moment that everyone on earth, everybody on the planet, has the same amount of time in every day. Regardless of who we are, where we are, what we are, we all have exactly 24 hours in each day, 168 hours every week, and 525,600 minutes each year. You say, gee, John, there you go with those numbers again, like that Psalm 90 sermon. I don't like the way this is starting. Hang in there. <laughs> Hang in there with me. Now, some people use that same allotment of time to build relationships, dream dreams, make plans, cultivate their walk with God, develop new skills, lives of adventure. Some people watch a lot of TV. <laughs> what differentiates people isn't the amount of time available to them, but the manner in which they exercise their gifts, their talents, within the allotment of time that we share. We can waste time, we can spend time, or we can invest our time wisely. My friends, that is what stewardship is about. Faithfully developing and using our gifts, our talents, our resources within the amount of time God has allotted, allotted to us. Now, let me say that in every stewardship relationship, there are two parties involved. You have, in a biblical context, you have the master who hands out the resources and one day will ask for an accounting. And you have the steward who is entrusted with the resources and must eventually answer for how those resources were invested. And so what we're saying tonight is that God is the master. He distributes gifts at His discretion. We are the stewards accountable to Him for all that we do with all that we have. Now, in our text tonight, Matthew 25, 14 through 30, we have the parable of the talents. And I think there are seven stewardship principles that we can glean from this passage. This will frame kingdom priorities. And when we live in light of these seven principles, I am convinced that it will greatly increase our effectiveness for the Lord. Now, before we begin looking at these seven stewardship principles, I just want to briefly touch on the context here. Context is king, is it not? I know in your school of messianic studies, you teach a course on inductive Bible study, right? Observation. What does the text say? Interpretation. What does the text mean? Application. What does it look like in my life lived out? Correlation. How does it correspond with the entirety of Scripture? Now, there's another step you don't want to take. That's procrastination. That's where you just blow the whole thing off. You don't want to go there. But what we're doing, we're taking a look at the context so we can make a proper application. Now, this parable comes in the section of Matthew's Gospel where Jesus, Yeshua, is giving an answer to the disciples' question about His second coming. His second coming, His second arrival, which is mentioned in Matthew 24, verse 3. When will this happen, and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Is the question that is posed in Matthew 24, 3. So Yeshua warns his audience to be on guard. Why? So that no one will deceive them 
And he helps them understand that once he leaves, he will return. And he challenges his audience in Matthew 24, 44 to be ready. Why? Because the Son of Man, messianic term from the book of Daniel, Yeshua's favorite way of referring to himself, the Son of Man will come at an hour when he is least expected. And so the point of this parable, in my thinking, is to reemphasize the necessity to keep working, working while watching and waiting for Messiah's return. Now, the first stewardship principle that emerges from our text is that what we have is not ours. What we have is not ours. Look at verse 14, if you would. For it is like a man going on a journey who summoned his slaves and entrusted his property to them. Now here, Yeshua teaches that the kingdom of heaven is like a man who went out on a journey and entrusted his possessions to his servants, his slaves. Let's put this in a first century context. It was common in that period of history for men of wealth to take a long journey, and they would often delegate the control and multiplication of their wealth, their assets, to trustworthy servants. Those individuals were expected to bring a return on what had been given to them. And so given the uncertainties of transportation in those days, the time of return for even a well-planned trip was often open-ended. They could not be certain when the master would return. Now, there was no doubt in the minds of these servants that the property and money still belonged to the master. It belonged to the one who had given it to them. They were the possessors, not the owners. Their job was to manage what they had been given. What does this have to do with us? Simply this. We must remember that everything we have been given, that we have been bestowed with, is not really ours in a total absolute sense. Think about it for just a moment here. We did not give ourselves our personalities, our talents, or the, the longings, the passions that we were born with. When we fulfill those gifts, our divine design, when we do that, when we're engaged in that, we are fulfilling something we were meant to do. We are a spiritual snowflake in the sense that there will never be another you. We need to have the mindset that we are playing for an audience of one. The totality of doing life should be viewed as an expression of worship. And a vital component of doing life as an expression of worship is this area of stewardship. It goes beyond mere monetary considerations. And so, the Creator of all things, He knows us thoroughly, much better than we know ourselves. He knows what's in us. He put it there. He intends for us to do something with it. Something that meshes corresponds with his intentions for many other people, right? You know, you may have gone through a trial that has prepared you to be an encouragement to somebody else. I would be willing to bet most of you have had that experience. Because of my medical history, I can minister to people who are going through certain types of medical trials. I have the credibility, because of my life experience, to speak to them at that level. 
you also have a certain credibility because of trials that the Lord has allowed you to go through that He wants you to use in your ministry to other people. Nothing is wasted if we have a proper view of stewardship. So don't rush through this thought. This is the fundamental principle of biblical stewardship. We own nothing. God owns everything. We are simply managers. The Bible says you may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But remember, the Lord your God, for it is He who gives you the ability to produce wealth. That's a reference to Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 17-18. through 18. We need to have a theocentric, God-centered view of possessions. As humbling as this sounds, we don't really bring a whole lot to the table. It's all God's, ultimately. And that principle, if you really think about it, that principle has some significant implications. First, since God owns it all, He holds the rights that come with ownership. Since we only have what we have been allowed to have, then we operate primarily in the realm of responsibilities. Please, hear this clearly. God has rights. We have responsibilities. God has entrusted us with certain resources, gifts, and abilities. And these things rightfully belong to Him. Our responsibility is to live by that in the sense of managing these things well according to His sovereign design and desire. Now another implication here is that since God owns everything and expects us to manage things according to His plan and purpose, every decision is ultimately a spiritual decision. How often have you heard people say, or perhaps you've said it yourself, well, there's head knowledge and there's heart knowledge, right? We've all heard that. That's a false dichotomy. That's an artificial construct. Take the words of the Shema. What does the Hebrew word Shema mean? To hear with the intent of obeying, does it not? What's the central thrust of the Shema? Our living life in view of the reality of God, our devotion to God, is with the totality of our being, right? There's, There's no head heart distinction in terms of our devotion to God. We need to think of this comprehensively, holistically. That's a a vital principle to wrap our head around. So again, every decision is ultimately a spiritual decision. It may seem somewhat mundane, but whether it's buying a new car, going to the movies, how we use our time and money, all of that matters. I think we need to move. If we're going to do kingdom life, I think we've got to distance ourselves a bit from that thinking, okay, this is secular and that's sacred. It should all be sacred. Amen? The totality of our lives. All that we are. All that we do. We're playing for an audience of one as an expression of worship. I think we need to wrap our head around that one. And I'm preaching to myself as much as I'm preaching to you. So, God demands to be in the loop in all facets of our lives is what we're saying. Now, the second stewardship principle from this passage is that we're given what we can handle. Well, that's encouraging, is it not? (laughs) We're given what we can handle. In verse 15, we see that the master 
gave some talents to three of his slaves. It says to one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. Now we need to pause here for just a moment and recognize that this word talent is very different from our present day understanding. In New Testament times, a talent was a unit of exchange. Its value depended on the type of metal that was in view, gold, silver, or copper. The talents in this parable most likely were silver. So what we're talking about here is that a talent was a coin worth about 6,000 denarii. The earning power of a talent coin was therefore the equivalent of about 16 and a half years of wages for a working man or a foot soldier. So the worth of the talents entrusted to the slaves in this parable was considerable. It was vast. It was significant. Five talents would amount to more than a lifetime of earnings. Let's put this in perspective. Let's talk about this in terms of our present-day economy. Using a minimal hourly wage, a talent would roughly be the equivalent of about $300,000. Now, that's not a hard and fast figure, but that's an approximation to kind of put this in perspective. So again, the master gave the first slave five talents, roughly, in terms of our economy, about $1.5 million. The second slave received two talents, approximately, in our present-day system, about $600,000. And the third slave got one talent, or approximately $300,000. And so even though there's a big difference between five talents and one talent, the guy who received one talent still had a lot of money, right? And so this reminds us that God gives out of His abundance to us. Now also notice here that each slave, each servant, received talents according to their ability. What does that mean for us? Simply this. It means that our responsibilities are tied to our ability. I can't do you. You can't do me. We, part of maturity is not playing the comparison game. Okay? Men are terrible at this. Women do a better job, generally speaking, of, of being mature about this. Men do this compare, you know, well, I make this amount of much, I make this amount amount of money. And you know, men kind of have this insecure thing going on with comparisons. That's spiritual immaturity. We need to get away from that if 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 that's an issue for us. No one can do you like you. So our responsibilities are tied to our ability. God's purposes do not operate really in accordance with what is fair, quote-unquote, but in accordance with what is best in terms of His plans and purposes for both time and eternity. Now, no need to turn there, but in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 5, Rob Shaul challenged believers to be united by not breaking into subgroups who follow different leaders. You remember what Paul said. Hey, what after all is Apollos? Who am I? Only servants through whom you came to believe as the Lord has assigned to each his task. That's the right way to think about that. Did you catch that? Each of us 
has been assigned a script, if you will, a task. It's our job to be faithful to what He has given us to do. You say, well, how do I know what He wants me to do? Find out what you're passionate about. What melts your butter, so to speak. You know, what's worth getting out of bed in the morning for? Let me, say, let me get real practical. Um, I think one of the most valuable things we can do today is to have intentional times of quiet. We live in a very noisy culture, do we not? How can you discern the promptings of the Spirit if you're bombarded with noise 24-7? How can you hear from heaven if there's clamor 24-7? Right? I recently was on a retreat uh, in Angel Fire, New Mexico. It was, it was a godsend not to have a schedule, not to have noise uh, around me. I, I could... I could hear myself think, I could, I could discern the promptings of the Spirit. I could ask myself, in this season of life, what's really important? You know, We need times, we need to be intentional and proactive about having a mini-retreat in the sense of isolating ourselves from incessant noise. We're bombarded with all types of noise. Sometimes we purposely surround ourselves with noise to avoid feeling and thinking. Not good. Not good. So, Give yourselves periods of quiet where you can discern the promptings of the Spirit. What has He given you a passion about? That's a very appropriate question. So, we have that customized role. Our job, let's be faithful in finding out what it is and getting about the business of doing it. Thirdly, thirdly, we must invest in what we've been given. Look at verses 16 and 17. The one who had received five talents went off right away and put his money to work and gained five more. In the same way, the one who had two gained two more. So what's going on here? We see immediately that the servants entrusted with five and two talents began to put their money to use for their master. This shows their faithfulness to their duty to make money for him. They traded with the money in some way and they made a profit. But look at at how verse 18 describes the different approach of the third servant. It says that the one who had received one talent went out and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money in it. (laughs) Here's the deal. Here's what's going on. Even though the text doesn't mention any specific instructions Concerning what these servants were to do with the money, the first two guys went right to work and multiplied their investment. The one-talent guy was a slacker. (laughs) What did he do? Bupkis, right? He went off and buried his blessing. So the practice of hiding valuables in the first century, the practice of hiding valuables in the ground was not that uncommon, okay? Culturally, this was not an anomaly. It was one of the safest and, of course, least profitable ways of protecting one's possessions. This third slave, this third servant, was unwilling to work and unwilling to risk. By bearing his money, he showed, well, it wasn't his money, the money he had been entrusted with. By bearing that money, he showed that he valued safety above all else. That kind of speaks to us, does it not? Sometimes we um, 
are shy and timid about going outside of our comfort zone, uh, taking a risk, being ridiculed, whatever. But if we're playing for an audience of one, when we look at the whole of life as an expression of worship, those things tend to matter less and less. You know, one of God's gifts to us is our potential. What we do with that potential is our gift to Him. You're the only person on earth who can use your ability. So a question we do well to ask ourselves, are we investing with what we've been given, regardless of how much it is? Or are we bearing our blessing, keeping it hidden from others? I think there are a lot of ministries that never get started because people are they're afraid to take a risk. They're afraid to put themselves out there. They're afraid of failure, humanly defined. We now come to the fourth stewardship principle found in this passage, and that is a day of accountability is coming. Now, certainly none of us here tonight, if we're rational, want to be audited by the IRS. Capiche? Absolutely. But we will all be audited one day by the Almighty. You can, you can bank on that. We will have to give an account for how we have used what we have been given. Look at verse 19. After a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled his accounts with them. Yeshua is coming again, and there will be a day of reckoning. Now, while most of us believe this in our heads, we don't always live with eternity in our hearts. If we would think more about his return, I think we'd be more focused on making an eternal return on our investments. Romans 14.12, very interesting passage. Romans 14.12, addressed to believers, right? It says what? Each of us will give an account of himself to God. You see, it was the duty of the servant to always bear in mind that the master would be returning and would settle his accounts with them. And the fact that Yeshua says it's a long time before the master returns probably is referring to the time between his ascension and his second coming. So I take it that while the slaves in view here are individuals living during the tribulation period, the time of Jacob's trouble, the 70th week of Daniel, the period of time that this whole Olivet Discourse deals with, the principles in this parable applies to all of Yeshua's disciples in all periods of history as we look forward to the full inauguration, consummation of His kingdom rule. Let's be faithful. Let's be faithful in doing whatever it is He gives us to do. He has invested something in you. And one day He's coming back to claim it. Now, there's another thing we do well to consider. You know your job may be big, maybe small, whatever it is. Again, do it as an expression of worship. That is so freeing. That is so liberating. I can't tell you in my own life, when I really wrapped my head around that, wrapped my heart around that, when I really embraced that, that when I was released from the bondage of trying to impress people and just you know wanting, is Yeshua pleased? Playing for an audience of one. That, that was a game changer. That was a paradigm shift. That changes everything, you know. So, you know, don't, don't play the comparison game. Don't strive to be impressive in that, in that way. 
John, First John two twenty eight is a very sobering passage. It says, "And now, dear children, continue, continue in Him, abide in Him, remain in Him, so that when when He appears, we may be confident and unashamed before Him at His coming." In other words, live life in view of future accountability. Let me be clear. I'm not talking about where people spend eternity. If you are trusting Yeshua tonight, His finished redemptive work, Shemayim is a done deal. I'm talking about recognition, spiritual rewards believers can receive with what we have done, with what we've received in this life. We need to serve in light of this future accountability. Principle number five tonight, what we do with what we have reveals our view of God. Let's look at verses 20 through 25. We see that the man who had been given five talents did what? He brought five more with him. And the language is insightful here. He says, see, I've gained five more. In other words, if we put on our original language glasses, look, behold, take notice of this. He was eager to invest what he had been given, and now he's excited. He's pumped. He's psyched to show the master what he had done. He's bubbling with enthusiasm here. He's thoroughly thrilled. He couldn't wait to present what he had done. Why? Because he wanted to please the owner. He's playing for an audience of one. The man with two talents approached this time of reckoning with the same anticipation, the same level of excitement. The master is thrilled with both of them because they demonstrated responsibility for their ability. You know what the Lord is looking for? He wants you to be fat. Truth. When my son (laughs) was on a Little League uh, baseball team and uh, the coach said, hey, you're in the ministry, right? Could you do a little, it was a playoff game, could you do kind of a pep talk? devotion for the kids you know you got to be ready in season out of season right so oh gosh okay what am i going to say this is what i remembered somewhere i it's in my book things i stole from others that stole them from someone else anyway uh, i said okay guys we're proud of you speaking on behalf of the parents we're proud of you because you've been fat they're looking at me what yeah faithful available and teachable that's what i mean by that you've been faithful You've come to the practices, you've been available, you've made yourself available, and you're teachable. You've taken the instruction, the coaching to heart. That's what God is looking for. Fat believers, right? (laughs) Faithful, available, and teachable. That's what we see here. Now let's take a look at what these two faithful slaves actually received. Number one, they received, well, let's look at the text first of all. What what does the Lord say? Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. So the master here increases their resources after they have proven themselves faithful. What can we glean from this? Number one, they received affirmation. Great job. Well done. I appreciate your good work. I appreciate your faithfulness. Also notice, they receive promotion. Since you have done so well with what has been given you, I'm going to give you even more responsibility and more opportunity for growth. Plus, they receive celebration. Hey, you've made me happy. Let's party. Let's celebrate together. This phrase, well done, can be translated excellent, wonderful. They were faithful and were called good because they had a right view 
of the master. That's critical here. Likewise, in our lives, when we see God for who he is, I'll never forget, I was teaching, uh, there was no one else to do it. I had to teach kids, uh, kids class one day. Everyone else was sick, you know. Kids ain't my thing, all right? But you do what you got to do. And, uh, you know, like W.C. Fields, you know, they like to work with kids and animals. But anyway, uh, <laughs> so I'm talking, I don't know, I, this precocious young man says, so John, can you explain to me the glory of God? I hear my parents use that term a lot, the glory of God. So, so how, do you, how do you talk about an abstract concept, the glory of God, to a, a five or six-year-old? Okay, I put it like this. All that God is, plus all that God does, plus no beginning, plus no end, equals the glory of God. He said, okay. Anyway, <laughs> you do what you got to do. <laughs> it was kind of like my ordination exam. When I was asked my understanding of the triunity of God, I said, how much time do we have here? No, I said, I said equality of personhood. Diversity of function is how I put it, my ordination exam. And uh, I, got the, I got the little paper, I guess they bought it. But anyway, but that's the glory of God. All that He is, plus all that He does, plus infinity, without beginning, without end, is the equivalent of His glory. Enter into the joy of your Master. They saw God for who He is. When we do that, when we wrap our head around the glory of God, we'll want to be faithful. We'll focus on doing good things. Again, God is looking for faithful people, people who will properly manage their resources for kingdom purposes. And we're responsible when we do that, and we'll be given even more responsibilities. I can picture a smile on Yeshua's face when he, centered, when he says, enter into the joy of your master. That's any hardship any trial, any service, any difficulty, it's going to be more than worth it when we see that smile on his face. Enter into the joy. Now, the one talent guy, let's talk about him. He was not so excited. He's a little more reluctant. He says in verse 24, I knew that you were a hard man. Now, notice the first words out of his mouth were what? About himself, right? I knew. We could translate this as I always knew. It's kind of like Jonah, you know. I don't want to go to Nineveh, you know, because I know you'll forgive them if they repent. <laughs> I, I know that, you know. I always knew, he says. The other two guys kept the focus on the master when he returned. Master, you entrusted me. Not so with the third guy. This third guy had a wrong view of the master, and his mind was made up even before he received his talent. He looked at the master as someone who was hard, harsh, instead of loving and gracious. Tozer was right. You ever read Knowledge of the Holy? Great book about the attributes of God. Tozer had it right when he said, what we think about God is the most important thing about us. If we view God as a tyrant, as a bully, then we filter everything through that lens. Some of you here tonight, I don't have the privilege of serving as your rabbi. I'm just a guest speaker. I can say whatever. Howard cleans it up, right? Isn't that what, usually how it works? The benefit of being a guest speaker. But uh, I don't know what's going on in your life. I don't have the privilege of being your shepherd. But I'd be willing to bet there may be at least a few of you who in your private world are 
you have some issues with God. You're, you may be hacked off at Him for some reason. Maybe you feel He didn't live up to His end of the deal in some way. Maybe your view of Him is somehow messed up. Our preconceived notions can prevent us from seeing Him as a God of grace. And as a result, we can refuse to serve Him. We can be a slacker. We can blame God. We can end up bearing our blessings. So how we view God is critical. A faulty view of God can also lead to excuses. In verse 25, this man declares that the reason he didn't do anything with what he had been given was because he was afraid. His fear paralyzed him, so he decided to play it safe. Of course, we never do that, right? He hid the money to make sure that it wouldn't be lost. And he accomplished exactly what he set out to achieve. Bupkis, nothing. Like the saying goes, if you aim at nothing, you'll hit it every time. A wrong view of God can also lead to fear. Verse 25 says, I was afraid and went out and hid your talent in the ground. A right view of God leads to faith. It's willing to take a, a chance. Are you struggling tonight with fear in some way? The best antidote to that is to further your understanding of the character of God and ask Him to grow your faith. I'm reading a great book right now. It's not particularly scholarly. Uh, not that that matters, but you know, like sometimes people think, oh, you guys just read that kind of stuff. No, not really. Read all kinds of stuff. But a great book, a very accessible, popular level book, is uh, written by an uh, old prof of mine from Moody, Bill Thrasher. It's called God as He Wants You to Know Him. Best thing I ever read on the attributes of God. It'll feed your soul. Get on Kindle, maybe eight, nine bucks. God as He wants you to know Him. Bill Thrasher. Highly recommend it. We need to have a right view of God. That's what leads to faith. You know, courage is not the absence of fear. Courage is moving ahead in spite of our fears. I think the first two guys were probably a little afraid as well. But because they knew the Master's character, instead of being frozen by fear, they stepped out in faith. This speaks to me. This speaks to me. The next stewardship principle, what we have, we must use, or what we have, we will lose. Verse 26 reveals that the master saw right through the flimsy excuses of that servant when he said, you wicked, lazy servant. The word wicked here means evil, hurtful, malicious. What a, an indictment of his character. In other words, the master is saying, you're lying in your heart, you're selfish. You're lazy. You know, if you really wanted to do something, you would have put that money in a place where it could have been receiving interest, could have been expanded, enlarged. I see right through you. These are very strong words here. We see that God will judge not merely for doing wrong, but also for not doing right. The man was wicked because he deliberately misrepresented both his master and himself. Falsely accused the master of being harsh. He lied when he said in verse 25, here's what belongs to you. Actually, he owed the master not only that one talent that he had been entrusted with, he also owned, owed him whatever he would have earned in addition to that had he done the right thing. And amazingly, instead of owning up to his guilt, he behaves as if the master should have given him credit for being so cautious. Of course, we don't do that, right? Lord, I played it safe. And because this third guy didn't use what he had been given, he lost it, according to verse 28. Take the talent from him. Give it to the one 
who has the ten talents. It's the use it or lose it principle in view here. Don't hold what you have. Develop it. Compound it. Multiply it by using what you've been given. This is much more, much more than money. This is the totality of our lives. Well, lastly, the seventh stewardship principle is who you know and what you will do will lead to either abundance or agony in the next life. And let me be clear what I mean by this. In verse 29, we learn that those who are faithful with the little things will have an abundance or excess. It says, for everyone who has will be given more, and he will have an abundance. Those who have been given themselves in selfless service will be given more opportunities, more rewards. But on the other hand, notice in verse 30 that the third slave, the one who hid his one talent in the ground, is described as worthless. Why? Because he failed to do his master's will with what the master gave him to use. And this resulted in the loss of his resources, rejection by the master, banishment from his presence, tears, and the banging of his teeth. So the question here is, does this unfaithful servant represent a believer or unbeliever during the tribulation period, the time of Jacob's trouble? Here's where I hang my hat on that. In view of the punishment he received, I think he's an unbeliever. Absolutely. Everywhere else in Matthew's Gospel, where the phrase weeping and gnashing of teeth occurs, it refers to the final condition of unbelievers. It refers to Gehenna, ultimately the lake of fire. You see, those who have entrusted Yeshua as Savior, they're usually not real concerned about serving Him. That's usually not a priority. And so a lack of serving may, you know, it's not up to us to render some creedal judgment. That's, you know, we're not fruit inspectors in that sense. Nevertheless, a lack of service may indicate, or an unwillingness to serve may indicate that perhaps someone never really trusted Yeshua as Messiah, as Savior. A distinguishing mark of the real deal, a genuine believer, is an attitude, a willingness to serve. So again, a lack of service may reflect the heart of someone who is not really forgiven by the Lord. They haven't availed themselves of His redemption. And so, I would simply say this about that. I never want to assume in any speaking venue, I never want to make the assumption that everyone I'm speaking to is in a right relationship with the Lord. It would be irresponsible of me to do that. And so I would simply say that if there's some kind of nagging uncertainty, you know, where, where am I at with Messiah tonight? If there's some uncertainty about that, talk to someone. Talk to one of the leaders in this congregation. You want to deal with that issue. That's critical. So this is what I would call kingdom priorities. It's stewardship. It's these principles that we can glean from this passage. Again, it's, it's a mindset that the totality of our lives, doing life in the presence of God, it's not a compartmentalized type of thing where, you know, I got my, my Shabbat time during the week and then I just kind of coast. No, it's the entirety of our lives, all that we are, all that we do as an expression of worship for Him. That's the comprehensive nature of stewardship. And I'll tell you something. I believe if that 
is the underlying drive of your campaign, you'll be just great. You'll do wonderfully. And I'll be praying for you in the days ahead as you seek to move forward. You're located in a uh, strategic location with the university. I recognize that. I'm learning about that this weekend. What do you got, 50,000 students? 60, 63, just the undergrads, and a considerable number of Jewish students, right, among that number. So you, my friends, are in a very strategic location to impact our Jewish people. You have many opportunities here to do what Howard and I call incarnational ministry, to live life in the Jewish community, to do life with Jewish people. And uh, again, I really think some unprecedented opportunities are coming up. Challenges, absolutely. And alongside of that, some real opportunities that we may not have had in recent days. So I think the best is yet to come in the kingdom agenda.